Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm your one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week? I'm very good, man. I hope the connection's good because it sounds a bit scratchy from my end, but that's often kind of deceiving. And then when we put it up, it sounds good. Uh, yeah, I'm doing very well. Like you, Paul, probably coming into this one a little bit tired, um, given that both of us were sort of messaging back and forth in the WhatsApp group about our respective exercise routines uh, earlier on today. Did you get done what you wanted to get done? Uh, yes, so I did. I've, ma- I've only managed to watch two films this week and I've been enjoying some time outside. That's not for anyone at home to panic uh, and just to think suddenly we're going to do a mountain boking stroke running podcast because I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but yes, I did, Pete. I've been enjoying the uh, enjoying the great outdoors, but I have still seen enough films to just about throw a show together. <laughs> that is good. That is good. It's a worry for me too because I think I've basically, for the popcorn section, got about one and a half reviews. <laughs> but um, they're going to be, you know, it's quality, not quantity sometimes with this show, isn't it, man? Absolutely. So let's get right into it. On this week's show, then, we will have all the sections that you know about already, I would assume. We start off with our uh, first section of the show in the foyer. Today, we're going to be talking about a couple of uh, news stories, and we'll get into that in just a moment. After that, we'll get to the popcorn counter. We've got some short reviews um, this week from my side, one and a half, from Paul's, maybe even two. Uh, Then we get into our coming attractions for this week. A few interesting movies are going to hit the screens and, well, big and small screens this week, I think, in terms of Mubi and Curzon as well. Then we get into features. For this week, we've switched it up a bit, basically because we weren't overly enthused by what was available at the cinema. So what we're going with is a classic review. Uh, It's a bit of a treat. This week, we're going to look at a film you might might know of called Jaws. (laughs) Uh, Basically, coming out of any summer, it's nice to go back and think about your absolute favourite summer movies and when we put our heads together we came up with this one as a clear winner but then what we really want to do um, in terms of a focus for this show is get into the credits section and this week we're going to count down our top five most anticipated movies of the rest of the year i.e. August, the month that we're in now, all the way through to December and the end of the year when we start looking towards kind of Oscar season and that part of next year. So there's a lot to get to, Paul, um, even despite the fact that we both, you know, live at least 25% outdoors now. Um, (laughs) So so shall we just kick right into the foyer? I think you've got an interesting one to kick us off this week. Uh, Yes, no, this is is a fascinating one. And yeah, I'm still not sure. Well, I know how I feel about this because I was moderately excited about this film, to be honest. Um, This is the news that Universal um, and Bloomhouse have pulled uh, from release schedules um, Craig Zobel's sort of action horror The Hunt, uh, starring Hilary Swank and Emily Roberts. Um, I mean, the premise of the film was based around uh, liberals hunting Donald Trump supporters. Uh, that's, right. <laughs> that's the concept of the film. So a bit like uh, a modern day politicised reimagining of Van Damme's Hard Target, I guess. Um, is the best way I can describe it. But yeah, so Trump um, publicly criticised this film um, and said it was an example of, well, whatever bollocks Trump normally talks. Um, I can't remember the exact words of the tweet. An example, I think, of racist Hollywood, I think. And then Universal have now decided to pull this. Um, this sets a worrying precedent for me, Pete. I don't I don't know about you. They've basically said that they will continue to support um, their filmmakers. They will continue to support interesting filmmakers. They will continue to support satirical filmmakers. 
but evidently in the current climate this is not the time to release this film. Agree or disagree, Pete? <laughs> well, yeah, there's a few things to sort of unpick there, I suppose, um, because you said this is not the right time as far as Universal go to release the movie. Does that, though, mean the movie is canned, or does it mean that we may see that distributor, or maybe even another distributor, pick it up and release it a little bit down the line? Do you have any insight on that front? I haven't seen anything further than that they will not release it for the time being, whether, some, whether someone else picks it up or not. I'd be very surprised if it shows forever but I can see it's the kind of thing I think we talked about another film last week that will probably now just creep out unannounced on streaming platforms at some point I would have thought so I'd say it's very unlikely we'll never see this film in all honesty because you know even a mid-budget horror film I would wager is too much of a is too much money to spend um to have it shelved forever um the film looks to me like it might be quite good fun in terms of a silly um a silly horror film um, whether or not, yeah, whether or not it's the right time for these inflammatory politics, I kind of can see both sides of that, Pete, because because America's incredibly divided at the moment. Um, mm. But if you can't sort of laugh at it through a silly horror satire, when can you laugh at it? I guess. What What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because. Um... Uh, uh, yeah, like you said, it's a Blue Mouse release, it's a sort of mid-budget horror film. It may not, you know, matter that much, um, I guess, in the greater scheme of things. But at the same time, your your point earlier on, I think, is important, which is it might set this sort of um, dangerous precedent where, you know, the whims of, of people like Donald Trump are taken into account when it comes to the production of movies. That doesn't feel like something that would happen in or should happen in the self-styled land of the free, really, does it? Um, so, yeah, it's an odd one. I mean, to me, there is one clear reason why you'd pull this movie, and it's because they've stepped all over and stolen Thomas Vinterberg's film title. But um, <laughs> apart from that, yeah, it, it to me seems like... Uh, like a bit of a shame, even though it's a film that like when we were doing our respective research for the countdown this week, I sort of looked at and didn't pay too much attention to. And that's probably why this story passed me by. Um, that's got nothing to do with it. You know, whether I'm interested in it or not, the fact remains that you don't want to see this kind of thing happen, I, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, yeah, it's a controversial subject matter. I understood that. I understand the, the, the subject matter might be divisive, but ultimately, is, is this not tantamount to just state censorship, though? If Donald Trump doesn't like a film, are they pulling it for that reason? You know, ultimately, they can say, or oh, they like that they've pulled it for whatever reason and under due consideration but would they have pulled it if he hadn't tweeted about it i highly doubt it uh, mm. whether or not it's whether or not it's responsible filmmaking in the current climate is a whole other argument you can have um, and whether or not it would drive um, an already sort of divided um, nation further apart is again another conversation but ultimately it's evidently meant as an over-the-top piece of silly horror satire there's no doubt about that if you watch the trailer it's you know it's not the kind of material that's meant to be taken seriously um so yeah for me it's 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 a bit it's a bit worrying uh and drives us a little bit closer to um the united states of gilead more than anything else i mean i suppose the cynic in me though would also think about uh, another point which is that for um universal pictures and for this movie there's the possibility that kind of uh, any publicity is good publicity in the sense that when it finally does get rolled out maybe it is a bit of a middling production maybe it's not anything to get too hyped about it that remains to be seen but this will certainly have had people talking about it i mean remember when uh, the interview got into hot water the um the film that was a sort of um satirical skewering mm. of the north korean administration that 
it seems to me, drew way more eyeballs to the film than would have necessarily been there before all the controversy and hoo-ha about that. So, I mean, we'll wait and see. I mean, on this show, our, our, our main focus really is on just quality films being available to all. And so the, the fewer that are available, the sadder and sadder we get. So, yeah, uh, bad news, I would say, overall. Um, I want to bring you on then, Paul, to my story for this week, which is that uh, Carl Urban, the most recent incarnation of Judge Dredd, has uh well come out and made a judgment and that judgment is it would be madness uh, it would be absolute madness <laughs> not to allow quentin tarantino to sit in the director's chair for a future sort of our hard R star trek movie that tarantino has lined up as his possible 10th and final feature film views either positive or negative on this news paul anderson uh i mean it I guess if you want to see something different done with Star Trek, then Tarantino is probably the way to go with it. Um, I suppose I can understand I can understand Carl Urban's enthusiasm because I guess everyone would want to work with Tarantino at some point. Um, will he be a good fit for Star Trek? For me personally, no. Well, Urban disagrees. <laughs> yes, he says uh, I think Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino doing that film would be phenomenal. He's definitely one of the most exciting filmmakers that's currently working. And if he has an interest in making a Star Trek film, I think the studio would be insane not to let him do that. Obviously, I'd very much relish the opportunity to be a part of it if it came to be. So, I mean, Carl Urban's obviously involved in the Star Trek franchise already, having appeared in one of the movies. But it seems like he's... Is that right? Yeah, see, I, I weighed in off the back of one story, fan, not yeah. really being a Star Trek fan, and make a fool out of myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, two things I don't hugely care about are Star Trek and Quentin Tarantino. So um, my, my answer to the question, should this be a movie, is um, it, it maybe, but I don't think it will be. Do you see this as being a realistic thing that Quentin Tarantino gets Star Trek? To be honest, like I, he's talked, it's been talked about for so long now that I'm starting to believe it may actually come to fruition. I think it kind of was... Was I think it was a, it was a passing comment that he made in an interview where he'd love to do it, and then someone's then I think there was some rumours. People will probably be more familiar with the story than me, but I think there was some rumour that he possibly even had a script idea in mind, and then he was going to do it, and then he wasn't going to do it, and then it's kind of on and on again, off again. And there's there's so much now talk about this that I I feasibly I could see that I don't know it's difficult because so there's that side of it. There's the other side of it that um, Chris Pine. Um, and something definitely Chris Pine has I think fallen out over pay because there was the the there was a Star Trek sequel planned and then that all fell apart I think mainly due to pay I think they wanted Chris Hemsworth back but couldn't get him back because he wanted to work for too much money so that kind of fell apart so I don't know whether the cast have all gone there have all decided to go their separate ways and kind of let it be whether or not Tarantino can bring everyone back I don't know but I'd say there's probably a reasonably realistic chance of this happening. Whether it, whether it will work or not, I'm up in the air. But I'll watch anything with yeah. Star Trek name on it, so I'll, I'll go regardless. <laughs> right. I mean, if this IndieWire article that I'm that I'm looking at here is to be believed, it sounds like it's more the balls in Tarantino's court in terms of making the decision about whether he does it or not. Uh, the R-rated script in question has already been written by uh, Mark L. Smith, is the writer here, right, okay. um, who, who wrote uh, Inuratu's uh, film The Revenant. Um, Tarantino apparently once he's completely finished with duties related to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which of course comes out this week says that he's going to punch up the script and then he's going to make a final call on whether he wants to push ahead with his 10th feature the only uh, maybe bit of um, debate here is about this 10th feature idea being Tarantino's last mm. because uh, some fans speculate that he could have meant 10th original script 
Tarantino original script, whereas this is a pre-existing franchise and the writer is somebody else. Uh, maybe there'll be another Tarantino after this one. Again, I don't care that much, but <laughs> there will be an awful lot of people and some of the people, of course, listening to this very podcast who will care more than me. And I respect that. And so it'll be interesting to see how this whole thing plays out, because, I mean, if nothing else, the idea of the writer of The Revenant working with Tarantino and doing something with Star Trek is interesting to me, if not essential. So. I mean, yeah, it's, it would be interesting to see Tarantino have a pop at big budget sci-fi. So from that regard, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I don't think he's the right fit. Would I, am I interested in it? Yeah, probably am. Uh, do I think it'll work? Probably nice. not. Coming up after this little break, we will be back with the section that we call Popcorn Movies. Yes, so popcorn movies. So as we talked about earlier, we've been outside lots this week getting some sunshine and some fresh air, but that doesn't mean we haven't watched any films. Uh, I've watched a couple of films, nothing really new this week actually, I've gone back to some films that both of which, weirdly enough, I liked more first time round and have rewatched a couple. So I'll I'll jump in, if I may, Pete, with um, my thoughts on my rewatch of Batman. Tim Robin Tim Robbins? Not Tim Robbins, Tim Burton. Tim Burton's Batman Returns from way back in 1992, which I think, if I am not mistaken, was originally a 15 rating, and my dad snuck me in when I was 13 years old. I think that I think this was a, a very exciting cinema experience for me, and one of the earliest times I remember going to see uh, a film of this scale at the cinema so I did have a soft spot for this um, we've got if in case you anyone needs reminded Michael Keaton as Batman Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman and Danny DeVito as the Penguin in this um, and you've got a much I would say a much more emboldened um, Tim Burton in terms of shaping this in as an absolutely bonkers Tim Burton film um, that being said as much as I like a lot of the production design and I like the performances I think Michelle Pfeiffer is incredible as Catwoman and Danny DeVito is great as the Penguin the film didn't really hold up for me in all honesty Pete which is a shame I just I found it I just found it very very directionless it took a very long time for sort of any story to form and as much as we spent we spent quite a lot of time with we spent quite a lot of time with some interesting characters Batman got very, very little screen time, which is something I don't really remember. And it just took, a, for me, a long time for this film to find its story. And then it just kind of petered out um, into not a nothingy ending. I just It just didn't work for me in the same way that it did before. So, yeah, production design, fantastic. There's a lot to like in terms of the performances. But as a film, it, it doesn't really hold up for me. And that might be because we've had the Nolan Batman since, and I hold those in such high regard. I don't know. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Batman Returns didn't stand up for me quite as well as I would have liked. Yeah, you, you covered it already, but I was just going to say, is this a sort of warping that happens, sort of PN in the post-Nolan, uh, sorry, pre-Nolan era, <laughs> I should say, um, because it's so difficult, I would imagine. I haven't gone back to those Batman films probably since I've seen the, the Nolan trilogy, but uh, it must be so difficult to sort of go back and and forget that those existed at the time when you first saw the movie. But then that's not how you rewatch things anyway. You always rewatch things with new context. So it's interesting that this one has sort of fallen down in your estimation a little bit coming back to it. Um, talking about slightly falling in your in your estimation, um, I rewatched Girls Trip, which is a film that, what, last year, two years ago? I don't know. 
two years could ago. Could be two I years think, ago. Yeah, we were yeah, it might be. we were pretty high on on this show, and and I don't think that's unwarranted at all. I just think my conclusion coming out of this rewatch is that, and I think it's the second rewatch for me, is that Girls Trip is a good movie, um, and the Tiffany Haddish performance is a great performance. I think the performance stands out sort of head and shoulders above the film itself. Uh, we've got this story of a group of friends who reunite from uh, being together sort of all the way through to college and post college. They're now later thirties, forties, and maybe even above in some cases and they're all going to go to a thing called essence fest which is like a big celebration of black female um, empowerment and sort of achievement in business and creativity and cooking and all sorts of things um, in new orleans and on the way or sorry on the way while they're there they get through or get into a lot of different scrapes which mostly result in tiffany haddish threatening to murder someone or teaching people how to <laughs> how to give blowjobs um and, and urinating on crowds. Um, yeah, I mean, there are still big laughs in the movie. In the movie, don't get me wrong. Like coming back to it has rewatch value. I just think that if you took that performance out, this would be a lot more forgettable than it was in the end. Um, have you seen it again since you saw it at the cinema? I've seen it once since the cinema. I don't think I was quite as hot on it as you were because I found that as much as it had some great comedy set pieces, I felt some of it, I thought it was slightly long-winded and I felt that the ending was a little bit on the nose for me. Oh, no, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think I would have said those things then too. Yeah, to be fair, you, you, you probably did. Yeah, I have seen it. And yeah, as I'm kind of with you. And I think it's, it's difficult with comedy sometimes because there's certain moments like are never going to be as funny the second time you see them. Um, like the Tiffany, Haddish, a number of the Tiffany Haddish set piece base set pieces in this are, are certain moments like that. So the first, yeah. So I think it loses something when you watch it sort of second, second or third time. Uh, I would probably watch it again. I liked it. I liked it enough second time round. But I agree, it, it loses something. I think on on second viewing. But then a, a lot of comedies do. So it's not necessarily its own fault. But yeah, yeah. I mean, there is yeah, and like I say, there's still lines that hit. I think there's a Queen Latifah line that hit me this time that didn't the first time, and 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 that was kind of a surprise. But yeah, uh, like I say, it, it was one of those. I think our attention at the time was basically on this sort of breakout, at least acting performance from Haddish, and like that is the takeaway really. Uh, mm. e- even coming back to it now, what else have you got, Paul? Uh, so this is. Life of Pi, um, which is another film that I really, really enjoyed at the cinema. Uh, this is Ang Lee's uh, Ang Lee directorial uh, effort from 2012, um, starring Siraj Sharma as part of the titular Pi, um, who, uh, through in the long and short of it, gets stranded on a lifeboat after a freight tra- a freight ship that's taking his family to Canada from India sinks. Gets stranded on a lifeboat with a tiger. Um, called Richard Parker and yeah it's as fantastical as it sounds um, and yeah it's the story of how he ultimately it's not a spoiler to say that he survives because there's an older version of him at the beginning of the film and how he's how he survives with a Bengal tiger in the life raft with him um, yeah it's still it remains an absolutely staggeringly beautiful film in terms of the effects work I think the effects work on the tiger still stands up which is great considering it's from 2012 um, like the the way the use of colour in the film is fantastic. There's some absolutely stunning set pieces and the 4K Blu-ray as well. If anyone if anyone is looking for a 4K disc to buy and wants to be blown away by it, this is one of the ones to buy because it just the film just looks incredible from start to finish. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a good there's a good central performance there. Um, that's quite nice. However, my word is the opening half an hour patronising and really, really poorly written in terms of on-the-nose dialogue. It's laborious. It really, really drags. It, it takes the film far too long to get onto the boat where it becomes interesting. 
and I, it, it, that didn't ruin the film for me, but it very much, it very much, I think, hampers hampers the rest of the film when it takes so long to get there. Do you remember? Did you see this, Pete? Is this one you're that familiar with? Or yeah, I, I'm. I've got an outspoken sort of unpopular opinion on it. Really, I, I, it, it's not even going against anything you said up to this point. I don't think, but like, it does look great. It is visually an, an amazing achievement. But I'm always sort of um reluctant to really overpraise a film for just looking good. And I found mm. it to be unbearably dull. Um, Life of Pi. I, it was it was a struggle sort of staying awake, and that's and that's not a result of all these da- dazzling visuals, which were you know really amazing. But uh, it was the, just the fact that the the story itself. I know that the story itself has been told in in novel form and has been incredibly popular and, and successful. And I haven't read that book, and maybe that's to the detriment of the experience. I don't think it should be. And yeah, I just I just didn't go for it. And I like Ang Lee. I like some of the stuff Ang Lee's done very much, but um, not not this really. No, I mean, I, yeah, I like it. I think, as I said, I like it from the moment he gets in the boat. But the first, the first sort of half an hour, I completely agree with you. I was just like, please get on with it. And you've got just, just like heavily, just incredibly heavy-handed dialogue as well, where you just it almost felt patronising. We're explaining all the different faiths to people, and then there's, you know, there's and there's some of the lines towards the end of the film as well, where it's just like such on the nose dialogue. It's it's not a subtle film. Um, for me, the visuals carried it. I think further than you. But yes, yeah, slightly disappointed. I think it, it's one of those films that outside of the cinema, because this is the first time I've seen it since I've seen it in the cinema, um, definitely loses its impact. And I think without the without the big screen visual flair, some of the some of its weaknesses certainly come to the fore. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, not in love with it as much as I was, to be fair. And, and I've got to throw in there, Paul, that's you saying that with an absolutely devastatingly high quality home <laughs> cinema setup. So yes, like, yeah. yeah, if you're watching this on, your, you know, your, your dodgy like 150 quid TV at home, then yeah, maybe... Maybe not so much. Um, second for me, I've got one that well, I feel a bit maybe not so much about this one. It's from, uh, what, 2017, I think? Bushwick. Uh, this is a movie that uh, I was drawn to basically because Dave Bautista's in it and it isn't Guardians of the Galaxy. So it'd be interesting to see how that went. Um, it's a co- co-directed by a couple of lads uh, that I don't know a lot about. Uh, co-starring Brittany Snow, who um, I just want to shoehorn in here. If people haven't seen her movie uh, or the movie that she's in called The Vicious Kind um, with Adam Scott in like a series role you should and I always try and plug that on this show but this thing uh, the two of them end up teaming up because um, something has happened in uh, the Bushwick area of New York and it's uh, resulting in gunfire on the streets people dropping dead left and right there's some kind of insurgency it seems like or civil war uh, I don't really want to spoil what that is because I think that's one of the hooks for the movie and this one is streaming at the moment on Netflix Um, But what I would say about this in summary, when the sort of um, opening credits to the the movie were running, I noticed that the soundtrack was kind of cool. And then they credited the soundtrack to Aesop Rock, who is a sort of verbose rapper that I like quite a lot. And he had done this, the whole soundtrack to Bushwick, uh, single-handedly, I guess, a lot of it instrumental. And then there's a couple of his own vocal performances on here, too. Um, and God wouldn't you know it they're really happy that they got him because they slather the Aesop Rock soundtrack over everything so you've got sequences that (laughs) that need that underneath it maybe but then you've got sequences that should be sort of um, close intimate drama between the central characters but underneath it you've got this kind of too cool for school kind of funky hip hop sounding soundtrack which just undercuts things a bit I think in addition to that and doing too much with that what the movie does is like 
you know when you see um, maybe first-time directors, Paul, or newer directors, and they're clearly wearing their influences on their sleeve, but what ends up happening is you're just, like we were talking about last week with Lion King or like thinking about better movies that have come before, um, you start thinking about those directors instead of the directors you're watching. So there are sequences yeah, in this which, problem, yeah. which are so clearly like Alfonso Cuaron sequences in uh, Children of Men, like they're so influenced by that movie or like um, the uh, John Carpenter movie Assault on Precinct 13, like you'll think about that here. Uh, just the way things are shot in almost every instance seems borrowed from other filmmakers and it gets to be really tiring because the the filmmakers here seem so pleased with themselves and so pleased with you know the guy that they've got to do the soundtrack as I mentioned that <laughs> that like there's no let up so you're constantly in like eight nine ten eleven minute unbroken long takes following action at hip height through the streets uh, sort of emergent action which early on seems really cool really engaging and then you realize oh no this is what's going to happen for sort of an hour and a half that would all be okay if in the central pairing of Britney Snow and Dave Bautista, you cared about them living or dying. It's pretty essential. Uh, <laughs> Dave Bautista is doing so little in his acting performance that he may as well not be there. And Britney Snow is really struggling to bring some life to this thing. So in the end, there are so many elements here that could have been sort of uh, socio-politically sort of prescient within the wrapping of a sort of action movie and, and some excitement. You've got like this guy doing the music who's usually like really cool. And in the end, what I got from this was a headache. Um, and it, it, just didn't, it just didn't work, Paul. And it was a real shame. Um, that one's Bushwick of 2017. I mean, check it out on Netflix and then get in touch and tell me how wrong I am or what I haven't understood about the movie. But like, yeah, I was hoping for a lot more and I didn't get it. Um, Paul, talking about a lot more, we have a lot more of this show to go. And right after this little break, we will come back to settle down for our section that we call Coming Attractions. So, back we are with coming attractions for this week. Uh, Pete, you've got the list in front of you, I believe, of things that we can expect to see at the cinema this week. We did mention earlier Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I think we mentioned last week, which is out Wednesday. tomorrow or the day Wednesday. Wednesday, yeah. uh, Apocalypse Now Final Cut is out tomorrow, which we're going to see, which again I think we mentioned last week, but I'm very, very, very excited about seeing that, so I'm bringing it up again now. Uh, so if you haven't booked a ticket for that yet, what are you doing? Book your ticket and go and see that. Uh, 100%. Not, don't bother with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. See Apocalypse Now. Uh, Pete, what else have we got? <laughs> we have got out this Friday then, uh, Good Boys. This is the one that you've probably seen the uh, trailer for if you've been to any films in the last couple of weeks. Uh, from the guys who bought you super bad and bad neighbours. And two exclamation marks for those pieces of information on the, uh, the film's poster. Uh, it's a film with the sweary little kids. Um, that that's my my summary. Uh, those sweary little kids uh, include Jacob Tremblay uh, from well breaking out from from room uh, quite literally in the case of that movie, um, and then like supporting cast Will Forte, uh, Lil Rel Howley, um, and a few others. Th this one um, and of course the trailer soundtrack by Run the Jewels, like every trailer is now uh, for this kind of like whoa we're doing something a bit edgy. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The way that I've set that up probably sounds like I'm down on it. And I think I am slightly down on it. And I think it might be trying a little bit too hard. But what are your thoughts, Paul? Excitement? Uh, no, I'm pretty much with you, to be honest. It's not, oh, look, kids are swearing. No, ha, ha, ha. 
let's move on. Right, and then in all <laughs> the... Because, like, Seth Rogen's done press for this, hasn't he? Because he's involved on the production side, I think. Yeah. And uh, he sort of said, you know, isn't it crazy? Because our boys, they could do shoot their scenes, but then they weren't allowed to watch their scenes. Cause, but it's, like, all used as sort of fuel to the fact of, like, oh, isn't it, isn't yeah. it wild, as you say, that kids are swearing? I don't know. Maybe we'll like it and we'll come back to it on the show with a review, I'm sure, in due course um, next week or, or whenever we get round to it. Also, then, on a completely different tack, we have a film that is dropping exclusively on Mubi at the end of this week, and that one is called Leto, uh, from a director called Kirill Serebrenikov. Uh, Paul, do you know anything about this? Uh, it's a biopic of Jared Leto. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully not. Uh, I know very little about this, from, gleaned from, and only just gleaned from when we were doing sort of the, the pre-show chat. So this is a Russian musical film set in the 1980s, um, and what it, it was nominated for the Palme d'Or. Um, which I would say puts it in fairly fairly strong company, to be honest. Um, I know very little more about it than that, in all honesty, Pete. Um, but, you know, if Mubia picked it up, then that, for me, shows it's definitely going to be an interesting watch, uh, if nothing else. And as I said, the Palm Door is a sterling recommendation in my book. Do you know any more than that, Pete? Or? No, no, you're, I, I'm with you about that, that sort of fairly low level. But that's why it's interesting to be keyed into the Mubi platform, because they'll chuck out these premieres, these exclusives that they're starting to get now. And, and it's a different avenue to finding maybe slightly more obscure or interesting stuff. So, again, we'll try and bring that back on the show and tell people. And what I quite, I'll be honest, some of those, there are points where I quite like going into a film with no prior knowledge uh, so yeah that's all that's sometimes quite exciting for me because I think there are times when we can be overloaded with trailers and previews uh, mm. and I'm not just using that to excuse my lack of research for this section uh, but no I'm quite excited about going into this one knowing very little about it so yeah looking forward to that one so another platform useful for finding stuff that you might not get on the big screen every time um, we've got at the end of this week coming out on the Curzon home cinema platform uh, transit this one is, uh, well, it tells the story of a man attempting to escape Nazi-occupied France who falls in love with the wife of a dead author whose identity he has assumed, currently holding an 84 meta score. So uh, get excited. From director Christian Petzold, I don't know loads about this one either, but again, like you say, maybe that's a good thing and maybe we should not dig into it too much and then just come back to it in either popcorn movies or features dependent on the, the level of, you know, blown away that we are with this this one. Mm, no, I think that's fair. Yeah, no, very little about this one again. Uh but from the sound of the premise, I'm intrigued. And an 84 on Metacritic, Metacritic is always a winner in my book. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm quietly excited about this. I one. think we're <laughs> probably in the same boat, Paul, as, as kind of movie nerds that like if you go onto a film that you've not heard a great deal about and you see that magical sort of 80 plus on Metacritic, wherever yeah. it's from and whatever it's about, you get a little flutter, you get a little bit excited. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, and not, not Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic. Metacritic is the one for me. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, not, not Rotten Tomatoes is, is faulty as we We've discussed in the past uh, <laughs> then also allegedly coming out at the end of the week is the uh, unlimited release I, I should say is the film uh, JT Leroy or I think it's been given the title also Jeremiah just... Terminator Leroy uh, at least on the IMDB uh, for okay. now so maybe that's a, a change they've made uh, this one directed by Justin Kelly but the real thing that drew me into the story other than knowing little you know bits and pieces about the JT Leroy story is that Kristen Stewart and Laura Dern are both attached um, and so that is enough to get me in the proverbial door however talking about that metacritic average if we swap those numbers around I think we get something close to the 58 that uh, this one's currently holding so obviously not getting universal yeah I've read a Midland review in the Guardian this week as well to be fair this, this, I think I can't remember the exact I kind of skim read the review but they weren't overly struck on it either so but yeah. with that acting talent involved I'm with you to be honest so yeah certainly yeah, totally with you it was enough to get me through the door as well so yeah and I should say we'll you know a, as a massive like stan for Laura Dern um 
Yeah, I'm currently wading through the current season of Big Little Lies, which I think is actually just wrapped up. And it's one of the worst shows that I compulsively watch. Like, there's so much I dislike about their show. But then Laura Dern is really good in it, so uh, it's just kept me kept me. Interested. Well, this is this is the series that Andrew Arnold was supposed to make, and then they took it off of her and gave it to Jean Marc well, to finish it, off. Is this? It's sort is of that. Series? Is that this that series? It's sort yeah. of that. Andrew Arnold directed all the episodes of the second season, but then they were sort of recut. And you, for one, Paul, would be very aware of this if you watch these episodes because there's Jean-Marc Vallée all over them if you didn't mm, like this is why I've avoided it so yeah, yeah. if you don't like you know <laughs> the wilds and stuff like that of the world then uh, yeah maybe not for you uh, okay that brings us to the end of this uh, coming attraction section that means we will be back in just a moment with our feature review this week going back in time to think about and talk about Jaws We are uh, very excited to talk about Jaws this week. Um, I was lucky enough to see it in the cinema a couple of weeks ago, and for some reason haven't brought it up on the show yet. So, uh, well, good. So we're here. I get we get to talk about Jaws, Pete. This is very exciting, to be honest. Uh, this is a lot more exciting for I think us both than some of the stuff was on at the cinema. And it might be that we do this a little bit more because I'd rather talk about films that excite me, uh, even if they are from way back in 1975. So yes, Jaws has its anniversary this year. Um, Pete, do you want? Do we need to set this up? Do you want to give it a go? We're talking about Jaws. You get to set up Jaws if you would like, sir. <laughs> uh, yeah, my setup for the film Jaws is it's a film about a shark, or is it? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you know the story. You know the story of a beachside resort that is terrorised by a uh, uh, great white shark, and um, all of the local people sort of have their lives in the hands of a group of men who have to make decisions about how, if, and when to tackle this problem. Um, I think the most interesting thing, Paul, about doing this kind of a classic review is to talk about why it is, not just why it's a good film technically or like how Spielberg pulled off the impossible with getting this thing done and all the headaches that were entailed there, but like why does Jaws mean so much to you? Because when I suggested this classic movie for this week, uh, or a classic movie for this week, the first thing you came back with was, I want to talk about Jaws. Why does it mean so much to you? Well, I just it's, I said it, it up until I saw it at the cinema. Like it's it's a film that I I'll be honest. I think I underappreciated Jaws, and I've always banged on a lot about Jurassic Park, and I think that you know I've always thought that arguably is Spielberg's greatest film in my opinion. I just think it's because I hadn't seen Jaws in the cinema. In all honesty, like it's just there. And we talked about this. We talked about this earlier on the show with with Life of Pi and those kind of films. And I think I've gone through, like I said, I've gone through a phase of seeing The Matrix, Don't Look Now, and then Jaws over the same weekend. And it's given me, it just it just given me Jaws a whole a whole new level of appreciation in my eyes, like seeing it on the big screen. So it's just, I just think it's just genius in what he does. And we said we just, in what Spielberg does so much with so little in Jaws. And I think for me, it's kind of the template for that. Um, in terms of what I mean by that is the fact that 
a lot of the time he evokes so much tension out of then being no shark on the screen there's the uh, for a, a large portion of the film there's yellow barrels that are tied to the shark then at one point there's just planks of wood that float around that are attached to the shark and like if you look at why he's done that a lot of the reason is the way he would have done that is probably because they didn't have the budget for the shark but in the same time that might be that might be there might be financial reasons for doing it but he's managed to make just inanimate objects scary and substitute for a shark in the same way that you feel like there's a shark on the screen and to do so much with so little is just something that really really jumped out at me from watching it again a couple of weeks ago Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the, the budget to the movie estimated at around $8 million, which, considering that this stands up as a sort of tentpole summer release now, in uh, being that it's from 1975, they can roll it out and sell a bunch of tickets in the year 2019. It's incredible it was made for, for maybe as, as little as $8 million. And then, do you have any idea, Paul, about the uh, worldwide gross of the film Jaws in cinematic run? I don't. Would you I'm... be able to take a guess? If you had to, to throw out a number, considering we're talking about worldwide release way back when not now when obviously the figures are inflated i'm gonna go with 58 million uh, the number i have in front of me here on the imdb is 470 million dollars as worldwide but from an eight million budget it, wow. insane okay. yeah and sort of setting up a career for its its young director really but yeah i mean getting back to to what you were saying i think you're absolutely right like all of the off-screen stuff has such an impact and the perfect really the perfect setting for that is keying into a kind of primal human human fear of what is underneath you know uh, this idea that like um, still waters run deep the idea that what you can't see might be darker and deadlier and more threatening than you can possibly imagine and I can still have moments now when I go in the ocean on holiday where I have a split second <laughs> thought of like oh no there's going to be something underneath me. And I think that this film has a lot to answer for. Well, for good and bad, I guess, in that extent. Because there are going to be people who have an absolutely uh, mortal fear of sharks that maybe wouldn't wouldn't have been afflicted if it weren't for the impact of Jaws. But from a filmmaking point of view, that your film can have that visceral of an impact on an audience is credit to everybody involved really but then more than the shark and more than the, the tension and more than the on-screen off-screen uh, sort of balance you've also got this human story at the center of jaws and when you i guess my question is is going to be uh when you think about this in terms of the dialogue the interplay between the central characters at the time when you first saw Jaws, did you read subtext at all? Or do you think that's something that comes on with age and time and rewatching? No, I'll, I'll be honest. I think when I first saw Jaws, I'd have been quite young. And I'll never forget jumping out when the dead body kind of pops out of the, the shipwreck underwater. Mm. That, that is a scene that will stay with me forever. I was just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I didn't swear at the time. I would have been told off. But I would have sworn now. Um yeah, so no, the, the subtext certainly isn't something that I think I picked up on the first time around. But yeah, you've just got like, I mean, not just the subject. Yeah, the subtext of the fact that you've got um, Roy Schneider's character, the amateur chief of police, um, Brody, just being scared of water <laughs> is is a just it's just a genius play to start with. Like, absolutely. Um, 
And then, yeah, like, no. So the subtext is not something I picked up on at all first time around, Pete, in all honesty, in answer to your question before I get excited and talk about Brody. It's interesting to to know that uh, apparently Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss didn't get along or or, or got along very, very badly on set when they were making the movie. Although I think that does lend a sort of tension to that relationship that they can feed off in some of those sequences in the movie. Um, I think for me, yeah, something you mentioned right at the beginning of talking about your love for this movie, that always stuck with me early on when I was you know way short of being able to think about this on sort of different levels was just about the barrels uh the barrels and the disappearance and reappearance of barrels for some reason was just such a memorable striking image that it's I guess uh in terms of visual language in movies if we were to do a sort of top five in that regard it would be right up there as something that tells you so much but sort of shows you relatively little visual information it's just so economical in terms of what it produces from so little on screen are there are there particular moments in the movie that you would want to highlight as like yeah these are the ones these are a couple of the ones you said the the dead body already in the shipwreck anything else that stands out as like yeah when i think of jaws i think of this and that moment uh i think of the um the kind of the for want of a better word the uh, the bromance on the boat uh, when the three of them are out hunting the shark, and again, like, and I, I love the fact that I love the fact that potentially Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss didn't get on because if they didn't, then that's it's better for the film, as you've said, Pete. To be honest, and I think that like his his kind of um, Richard Dreyfuss character, his kind of wide-eyed enthusiasm for for the sharks and that kind of thing, and then against like Shaw's character of Quint, who just kind of hates them and wants them all dead. I think that juxtaposition is incredible. And then Brody, idea is Brody, just just feels like the sort of the perfect. It just makes just almost like the perfect the perfect. I was going to say the perfect three way. That's probably the wrong wrong choice of term. Uh, but I think you know where I'm coming from. I just think the the three actors just play off each other so well in terms of the difference in characters. And you've got sort of Brody in the middle trying to kind of balance balance the two approaches. Um, and I just think it, it works incredibly well. And the chemistry between the three of them is is absolutely fantastic. And I think just adds to. It just it, it just adds to raising this above what I mean. Let's be honest. Jaws could have been a B movie. Like ultimately, it is a film about a killer shark. It didn't really have any right to be as good as it is um, in terms of how well it's made um, and has set the template. I think certainly for not just summer blockbusters with B movies ever since. Um, and I just think it's it's the perfect combination of all of those things. And the the actors have got you know have got a lot to have got a lot to say for that in terms of how. How well they perform in this film. I don't think you can. I don't think you can see a film about a killer shark with better performances in it than this one. Um, yeah, short. yeah, and you're right. It's a killer shark movie, but it's a killer shark movie that manages into sort of manages to sort of Trojan horse in. You know, thinking about uh, things like uh, social responsibility, things like uh, political power and its abuse, um, things like. Yeah. With the mayor that with the mayor that just refuses to close. Yeah, the yeah, absolutely. Because in the in the name of profiteering, right? Like about male friendship, about like the the uh, crimes of the past, or the the shadows of like war and the impact that has on men. Like, there's so much going on. Um, if you're going to give it the time and sort of look into that, but the the great thing to sort of point out here, I guess, is you don't need to. Like, you don't need to pick up on any of that stuff to still have like a hell of a time watching and rewatching this movie. Maybe a little bit less so when we get into 
into all rolling out all of the sequels, but certainly the original Jaws it stands up and then some e- even today, right? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And it's just it was nice to see. As I said, it's really nice to see it on the big screen. I've never got to go before, and like that for me is the ultimate test of a movie if it stands up on the big screen. And yes, you could argue that some of the special effects are are clunky, but it doesn't kill the film for me. It's just it's just a film that is pure atmosphere from start to finish. And, you know, the one thing we haven't mentioned is John Williams' mm. soundtrack is just absolutely iconic. Um, absolutely iconic. It just, again, adding weight and tension to a film that starts, you know, that's creature is, let's be honest, at times an obviously rubber mechanical shark, and it's still yeah. scary. And that soundtrack is just, again, it's just it's such a simple, it's just a simple soundtrack just used to brilliant yeah, it's, it's a fantastic point and one that i'm glad that you got to because just talking previously about that movie bushwick not that there's any comparison between the two but you'll understand i was talking <laughs> there about how you've got like a composer who's perfectly talented uh, he's not john williams perfectly talented but what the filmmakers have done is they've just used the the music the original score that's been created so cack handedly as to be just distracting and sort of headache inducing whereas what's used here from john williams is used sparingly is used effectively is used intelligently and like you said it does so much of the legwork that then doesn't have to be done by a load of flashy like uh, on-screen effects practical or otherwise right so you're already tense about the appearance of a possible shark when you just hear like you know some some stringed instruments so that you don't need to be shown all that stuff because it connects with you on a sort of uh, sort of lower gut guttural sort of level so yeah it, it's uh, it's one of the great scores I think from from any film whether blockbuster or otherwise yeah, no, hundred percent agree with you, and it just yeah, it's just a shame now that we've seen. I don't know, like we we just seem like people seem to want more more creatures on screen, just more of everything on screen. And Jaws, you know, look back at Jaws, and it's a prime example of mm. less is more, um, without a shadow of a doubt. And then when the shark does, you know, you finally do get the big reveal of the shark. And it's all the more impactful anyway. So it just makes sense. It just builds and builds and builds and builds, and then boom. You've got the, the sort of final confrontation with the shark, and then the film is over pretty quickly after that. It just, for me, it's it's almost it's, it's nigh on a perfect slice of of Hollywood entertainment, and it's it's what Hollywood it's the kind of film that Hollywood yeah. does best. Um, and I wish more directors would, you know, obviously directors I'm not saying that directors out there haven't seen Jaws or weren't inspired by Spielberg, but I kind of almost think that there's a number of directors working out there today that could go back and rewatch Jaws. Um, and just and just have a think when they're just plying all these effects and creatures onto the screen that maybe at times less is more and yeah, remember yeah that. absolutely and like think how many times even on this program we've reviewed films and said they've just shown the big bad the monster the alien the whatever it is too soon it's been revealed too soon mm. and now the tension is punctuated and, and lost and uh, punctured I should say and lost and and that tension dissipates and what doesn't happen in Jaws is sort of a loss of tension and that's why you're kept almost literally on the edge of your seat for, for so much of the runtime of the movie. So yeah, I mean, talking about less is more and being economical, we should probably bring this one to an end so that we can get to our countdown for this week. But as you said earlier, Paul, I think coming back to classic films is something we'll do a little bit more because it allows us to reflect on some of the things that not only exist in that particular movie, but also tropes that we'd like to see more of or maybe less of in, in other more modern movies. So uh, a, a useful exercise, I think, and a fantastic movie. If you're one of the three or four people who hasn't seen Jaws yet you know sort yourself out uh, and you can get it from all all good retailers Um, we will be back (laughs) in just a moment then to look ahead to the rest of the year August to December with our most anticipated movies of the year to come after this (laughs) 
Right, so yeah, following on from last week where we did our top five of 2019 so far, we are going to deliver now our top five most anticipated movies of the second half of 2019. Um, yeah, and I think we said last week that nothing... It's been a slightly disappointing year for me, to be honest, Pete, in terms of in terms of the quality of film. So I'm hoping that all the films on this list will deliver for me and turn 2019 into a cracking yeah. year. Um, yeah. Yeah, do you, do you want to go first with your number uh, five? Sure, I'll get this one out the way, which is not a slight on the movie, it's just because it's a bit of a, maybe a bit of a downer <laughs> uh, to, to kick off with. But the first one I'm going to go for, it releases on the 1st of November this year, it's called Sorry We Missed You, and it is the latest from director Ken Loach, um, that we would have seen, uh, or you would be aware of, uh, if not for other films from uh, the absolutely devastating um, I, Daniel Blake, a couple of years ago. Uh, this one tells the story of a hard-up delivery driver and his wife who struggle to get by in modern-day England. Now, again, I don't know a ton about the film, and I don't think... I'm not really one for watching too many trailers or trying to read too much into movies oftentimes because I think that often you can get a lot from just trusting good filmmakers and getting a bit of information, you know, a bit of general information. But uh, what I would say about this one is that if any director is going to be able to tackle and handle the issues that surround the modern blight of like uh, the gig economy and zero hour contracts and uh, job insecurity and domestic um, struggle, then I think Ken Loach is your man. And that doesn't sound like, you know, the, the most uh, sort of fun that you could necessarily have at the cinema. But I think at this point we live in a world that, you know, isn't all, all fun and rainbows and we probably need to just uh, accept that and every now and again get a good dose of, of reality. And I, I don't buy into the idea that Ken Loach makes sort of mis misery porn that was uh, banded around the I, Daniel Blake release. I think it was a fantastic film and I, I really look forward to this one, even though I look forward to it knowing that it's probably going to be quite upsetting um, and quite chastening. Paul, what do you have? And sorry, I should say again, that was called uh, Sorry We Missed You and it releases November 1st. Paul, what have you got at number five? Uh, I've got The Irishman uh, at number five, which is a Netflix exclusive release, but Netflix have landed Martin Scorsese as director of this and it reunites Martin Scorsese with Robert De Niro. So I would say probably Netflix's biggest film um without without a shadow of a doubt really so this is you know a new martin scorsese film for me um is always big news martin scorsese re reignite reunited with robert de niro is even bigger news um in an, an irish sort of irish american set gangster film um seen the teaser trailer i don't know again i haven't read too much more about it than what's in the teaser trailer but with those with that cast involved um and that director I'm very, very excited. Um, this could be, I think, yeah, whether this pays off for Netflix or not, I imagine it's cost them a lot of money to get a Scorsese exclusive film on their platform. But yeah, any work from Scorsese, I'm into. Um, and that is my number five, and that's The Irishman. And that at the moment is down for a release, certainly uh, well, at London Film Festival on October 13th. Knowing Netflix, I think it will mm. drop very soon after that. So I would anticipate that sort of mid to late October on cool. Netflix. Um, I have then at number four a film called By the Grace of God. This is the new one from Francois, or Francois, I should say, Ozon, um, a film director that I've tried to push on the show quite a bit. Um, it tells the story of three men, friends from childhood, who uh, reunite with one another and compare their personal experiences and sort of look back and question their lives and their decisions and the, and the sort of flowing, uh, ebbing and flowing of time, I guess. Um, or in the French title, Grace Adieu, 
this one is due for a release at the end of October, 25th of October, 2019 in the UK. And I just feel like Francois Ozon is one of those film directors, whether it's like back to things like um, Swimming Pool, that I think I talked about on the show, or uh, In the House, or... Um, uh, Jeune et Jolie was, I think, the last one that I saw. Just a filmmaker that I find um, works for me and maybe doesn't work for everyone, but is really interested in telling um, stories about what it feels like to be a human being. I remember enjoying In the House, so I'm quite excited for this one. I think that was the last, last yeah. film I saw of his. And I remember liking it, so yeah, I'm, I didn't know that was out, so I'm excited. Yeah, I think you're you're in safe hands with Ozon if you uh, if you like that sort of thing, which uh, you know more people should. Uh, that's by the grace of God, and it releases 25th of October. Paul, what have you got at number four? At number four, this is what um, looks like big budget sci-fi. Well, it is big budget sci-fi. This is Ad Astra, uh, directed by James Gray, who I think we last saw directed The Lost City of Zed, which we both quite liked on this show, I think, if I remember rightly. Um, this is, as I said, a big budget sci-fi starring Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones. Um, from what I can glean from the trailer, Tommy Lee Jones, well, Tommy Lee Jones is um, the character that plays the father of Brad Pitt's character and has been sent into space on some kind of secret mission, uh, potentially to either, I think, initially, well, look for extraterrestrial life, but the trailer gives us away. He's actually experimenting on a highly volatile substance that could wipe out the entire solar system. Um, and Brad Pitt, his Brad Pitt's character, his son, is sent on a mission into space to find out what's going on. Now, by the fact that this is directed by James Gray, I would say this probably isn't as cut and dried a sci-fi action film as the trailer makes it look. Um, but from the basis of Lost City of Z, I'm excited to see um, James Gray work on sci-fi. So I've got a feeling this will be more akin with something like Sunshine or that kind of thing than, than the trailer perhaps makes out. Um, and that excites me. Anything sort of... For want of a better word, think yeah, sort of thinking man sci-fi is something that really, really appeals to me. So I'm very excited about Ad Astra, and that is currently due to drop on the UK on September the 18th. Nice. Yes, more on that later. Um, at number three <laughs> for me is ah, oh, there's sadness in this one too, Paul. This evening I was supposed to go and see a preview of this one, and I can't because I've got to work. But yes, uh, my number three most anticipated movie coming up is Pain and Glory, which is the new one from Pedro Almodovar. Uh, this one with Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz. You may have seen the trailer kicking about. Um, again, it's a bit... When I was putting this list together, there's so much stuff that we have to leave out to do a top five. You know, top five mm. is a pretty unforgiving number that really um, I... I looked at my final list and I thought oh I look like I've just followed certain directors and I guess I hold my hands up I have uh, if there's a new Almodovar a new Ozon film or a new Ken Loach film like I'm gonna be excited about those and the fact that a load of these are dropping in the next five months is it's really exciting so yeah this one uh, is gonna sound a little bit like what I said about by the grace of God but a film director reflects on the choices he's made in his life as past and present come crashing down around him that film director of course is the Antonio Banderas character uh, Almodovar is both writer and director here and for anybody who maybe is getting into films in a slightly bigger way and starting to sort of reach back into the past and, and look up what directors have done I really compel you just like look at what Olmodovar's back catalogue is at this point dive in at almost any point and you'll find that he quickly might become one of your favourite film directors and that's about as high praise as I can give it uh, Pain and Glory is out in the UK officially or wide on the tw 23rd of August uh, of this year 
I second that recommendation and dive into Elmer Duvall's back catalogue for sure because there is some incredible films in there um, and you are missing out if you haven't seen them. Uh, the list is the list is too long to name. Almost, yeah, ma- but yeah. <laughs> maybe don't throw it on with like the whole family at Christmas time or something like that. Be a little bit no. careful because the guys, you know, he, he the, he's into a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, really, really strong recommendation. Paul, what have you got at number three? Uh, little little known release: uh, Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker. I'm not done with Star Wars yet, Pete. Despite um, my much publicised hatred of the Last Jedi on this show, I'm not done with Star Wars yet. I'm very intrigued to see what J.J. Abrams can do with Rise of Skywalker. Uh, for me, uh, The Last Jedi has given him so much to do, so many narrative threads to tie up, but I'm not sure anyone could fix the mess that that film left. But I'm still quite excited to see them try. Um, the trailer is just basically playing on my nostalgia again. They put a Death Star in it, the Emperor's back. Like Geeky Paul is, is still just about on board with this. Um, and yeah, December the 19th can't come soon enough for me. That's when it's out. Nice. Uh, I mentioned you'd hear more about one of the films again. At number two for me is Ad Astra, the James Gray film that you've, that you've previously mentioned. Um, Paul, it's very simple. Like you were saying, you give me space... Then you give me a bit of like, as you were mentioning, sort of intelligent sci-fi or thinking man sci-fi. And then add into it the stuff in the trailer where he's trying to reconcile his memories and relationship with his father. And like, just yeah. take just take my money or, you know, my <laughs> unlimited card or whatever we're using in the transaction at the time. Um, that, I, I had a bit of a wobble when I was putting this in because I thought, am I getting overly excited because of the elements that I've just described when I'm not? a hundred percent sold on brad pitt being the person at the center of that there is also something Mm. about the trailer that looks incredibly similar in sort of tone and thrust to uh, gravity and i know it's going a different way in terms of what the the actual sort of point of the narrative is um but something about the sort of solidarity and soul searching of space but then again i couldn't stop talking about gravity so give me more of that um yeah really cool and also the fact that you know you mentioned lost city of zed for example it's one of those movies where yeah it wasn't perfect yeah not all of it was absolutely scintillating but at the same time i very clearly remember thinking i really really like some of the choices that this director makes yeah and if you've got faith in a director like that and then he gets material like this then i guess you've got to get excited so as you said september 18th for ad astro and it'll certainly feature on this very podcast paul what have you got at number two uh, i've got the uh, the nightingale at number two the latest film from the director of the babadook uh, jennifer kent um, this centres, um, stars an actress who I'm not aware of, not particularly aware of, called Eiling Fogosi. I think I've completely butchered her name, so apologies. Um, yeah, this is this is um, what looks like, certainly if it's not a horror, it's going to be fairly harrowing in terms of what I've read about this film already. Um, it focuses on Claire, a young Irish convict who chases a British officer through the rugged Tasmanian wilderness and is bent on revenge for a terrible act of violence the man has committed against her family. So, um, yeah, you can imagine the tone of this if you've seen The Babadook is going to be very, very dark. It may look like a horror film, it may sound like a horror film, but it's if it's anything like The Babadook, it's going to be another harrowing study of human emotion. Um, and I'm very, very excited to see what Jennifer Kent does next, because I think we might have touched on this last week as well. 
Um, I think this is our second feature, unless I'm otherwise mistaken. So, um, yeah, it's always interesting to see what a director does next when they've produced a film that you very much like the first time round. Uh, so, yeah, that's The Nightingale at number two. Now, I had the UK release date being down as last Friday, the 8th, but I can't see it on anywhere, even on limited release at the moment. So uh, look out for that one very soon. If we find the release date in between now and then or someone knows it, please let me know. But I did struggle to find it earlier. So uh, imminent, um, I would say, with The Nightingale. Imminent Paul is also true of my number one pick, most anticipated film that's going to come out before the end of December this year, and this one is called Nonfiction. Nonfiction is the new one from Olivia Assayas, the director of, uh, well, recently anyway, um, Clouds of Sils Maria and Personal Shopper, two films that I went quite big on, and I think you did as well, Paul, on our show. Um, this one co-stars Guillaume Canet and Juliette Binoche and uh, again I'm sorry to like keep doing the same thing with these previews but like <laughs> that's kind of enough like you, you, you've got all the elements there uh, currently sitting at a 79 as a meta score guide of the fact that it's at least reasonably uh, well thought of at this point for the people who've been lucky enough to see it uh, the release date for non-fiction is uh, 18th of October and this one is um, it circles around the Parisian publishing world of course it does um, an editor and an author find themselves in over their heads as they cope with a middle-aged crisis the changing industry and their wives I've stacked the deck with a load of sort of social drama relationship and look back on your life <laughs> you have, movies. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm having some kind of early midlife crisis but if I am then uh, I'm in the, the hands of some very talented filmmakers so yeah I look forward to all of these Paul what's your number one most anticipated uh, my number one and the trailer dropped for this quite recently so I'm incredibly excited I was incredibly excited about this anyway I'm even more excited now uh, this is the follow-up from uh, Robert Eggers to his film The Witch uh, this is The Lighthouse which stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson um, it appears to be focused around two sailors who get washed up in a lighthouse and things go very very awry for them um, the trailer looks like this is going to be absolutely bonkers um, and yeah, I it doesn't really give much away about what the film's about, apart from the fact you've got these two guys trapped in a lighthouse played by, for me, like a, an incredibly talented veteran actor in Willem Dafoe and an incredibly talented sort of newer star in Robert Pattinson. Um, the Witch I thought was fantastic. The more I think about The Witch, the more I like it. Um, it was all about atmosphere than it was about scares. There was just a, a, a sense of dread that and just a sort of sense of dread and uncomfortableness that pervaded the whole film. And for me, the trailer to this looks like this is now Robert, Robert Eggers is going to be sort of emboldened by the success of The Witch and is throwing even more sort of craziness into the stew here. Um, so I'm very, very excited about The Lighthouse. I think it looks incredible. Um, it looks like it's really, really well shot and very, very excited for it. In terms of a UK release date, uh, I think it's down as October in the US at the moment. So it might get pushed back into 2020. I hope it doesn't. Um, I hope it comes here quite quickly, but it still looks like, frustratingly, it's a few months away. But yeah, that is my most anticipated film uh, for the second half of 2019. So uh, from five to one, I had Sorry We Missed You from Ken Loach. I had uh, four was By the Grace of God, three Pain and Glory, two Ad Astra and one Nonfiction. Paul, what were your five? 
so my five is Irishman from Martin Scorsese, Ad Astra from James Gray, uh, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker from J.J. Abrams, uh, The Nightingale from Jennifer Kent, and The Lighthouse at number one from Robert Eggers. Right, I- I'm going to cry myself to sleep if you don't let me do the next thing, which is I'm just going to bang out a couple more releases for you, Paul, that I've got release dates for, and I just want your quick response to whether you're interested or not. Right, are you game? Okay, do it. Okay. Come at me. Uh, Zombieland Double Tap releases October 18th. Ruben Fleischer's directing. Not fast. Have you seen the cast? Yeah. Oh, it's a huge cast. I mean, it didn't make my top five, but I'm, I'm fairly into it. Uh, okay, another one. Doctor Sleep. This is the latest from Mike Flanagan, who's done stuff like uh, Oculus and loads of, uh, and Hush and like a bunch of cool uh, little horror, sort of mid-budget horror films. Interested or no? Mildly intrigued. Okay. Uh, the Mustang, <laughs> Robert Redford directing. Uh, yeah. Any interest? I'd, I'd check that out. Okay. Uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, I think we've covered at this point. Knives Out. Knives Out drops November 22nd. This is the new one from Ryan Johnson. Uh, and uh, as I put up on the socials last night, uh, Lakeith Stanfield plays a, a fairly significant role in this one. Uh, Knives Out looks like a sort of a satirical, uh, probably satirical sort of fast talking drama. It's Ryan Johnson. You know what you're getting. Uh, interested? Uh, yes, very much so. You're still into Ryan Johnson, I, I would assume at this point. I, right. I don't have a problem with Ryan. Well, I have a problem with what Ryan Johnson did with Star Wars. I don't have a problem mm. with Ryan Johnson as a director because I think he's a talented director. I have a problem with the fact that he treated Star Wars as a joke, but aside from that, I like all of his other films. So yeah, I'm I'm very yeah, I am looking forward to this. Okay. Uh looking forward to September thirteenth. It's a big day. Cardi B makes a film feature debut in a film called Hustlers, where they play a bunch of uh, there's a, a group of women who play strippers um who try to uh turn the tables on the yuppies that have thrown money at them over the years. Interested? Uh, film of the year. <laughs> nice. Uh Oh, there's a film, a Chinese movie with Zhang Ziyi called The Climbers, which is about a sort of um, terribly uh, difficult ascent of Everest. That drops September 27th. Interested in Zhang Ziyi in the snow? Uh, Yes. Okay. It's a good section. I'm enjoying myself. That that might might just about (laughs) wrap up the main things. Oh, there's also one um, I don't know much about, but called Monos, which comes out on Curzon Home Cinema on October 25th, which you should watch the trailer, man. Just looks like uh, one of those, something like Beast of the Southern Wild, you know, where you get like a real sense that this is a new voice yeah. in film like someone who's got something going on visually and sort of thematically so Monos is maybe a little recommendation there but yeah I mean I think takeaway from both of our lists and a few of those that I threw out is that there's a lot of reasons for optimism in the rest of 2019 and by the end of the year I mean this list was difficult to do so by the end of the year when we have to cut down you know the entire year into a, a 10 through 1 uh, run it's going to be very very difficult and hopefully very very difficult because that's always signs that we've had a great year yes i agree yeah the harder the, the harder the best of the year list is to do the better the year it's been so yeah <laughs> hopefully it's not cut and dried absolutely yeah and cut and dried might be uh, this show at this point because uh, we've come to the end of this episode episode 141 but we always want to tell you to well like and subscribe the show make sure you subscribe it's good because then you get the show delivered straightly straight to your uh, podcatcher of choice also uh, follow the instagram and the facebook and the twitter and all that stuff paul anything else to say before we go uh, thanks for listening all right see you next time shut up and sit down